The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is Ibari and X, and this is The Candid Frame. We are nearing our 300th episode, and a small thing I would like to achieve before then is to get over 300 five-star reviews in the iTunes store. I'm just a little shy of that right now, and I think we deserve to have more than 300 reviews there by now. So why don't you make the time right now to post a review in the iTunes Music Store and share why it is you love The Candid Frame, We always love to hear and read that. During my recent trip to Seattle for PIX 2015, I got to meet some really interesting photographers. Of course, there were some great people who I've known for years, like Joe McNally, Brian Smith, Colby Brown, Bobby Lane, and Aaron Huey, all of whom have been guests on the show over the years. I also got the chance to connect to some new people like portrait photographer Brian Ash, photojournalist Devin Allen, and today's guest, Keely Fish. Now, if you didn't get the chance to attend the event, do yourself a favor and go to pix2015.com and check out all the videos that are posted there. It was an amazing assemblage of photographers unlike anything you'll see anywhere else. These short videos provide information and insight that you would be hard-pressed to find. It's really that good. Now, I didn't manage to catch Keely Fish's presentation while I was in Seattle, but after watching the video, I knew I had to have him on the show. You know, we, we talk a lot about photographers combining a personal passion and interest and combining that with their passion for photography. Keely does that by introducing us to a world of primitive skills, a community of people from all over the world who are living in the natural world, but without the benefit of modern conveniences, including a simple knife. They live using tools, clothes, and other necessities created using only their hands and primitive stone tools. It takes roughing it to a whole new level. He's been a part of this community for many years himself and recently began documenting this world with his camera, which brought on its own set of challenges, as you'll soon hear. Let's get started with uh, um, your, your ancestry. Your, your, your ancestry is part of the Nanai people, and uh, it's not a huge community uh, from what I was reading. Uh, they're about probably less than 20,000 in the Western Siberia area and probably and less in, in China. Yeah, that's right. Um, it is, it's technically the largest indigenous group in Russia, um, but nonetheless, um, it's a pretty small group of people. Uh, yeah, probably about 30,000 total between the Chinese and Siberian sides. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of mixing, too. Um, so uh, today there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of mixed blood um, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's a 
I don't know. The, we're we're sort of collectively grouped into um, the other peoples that live have traditionally lived along the Amur River there. Mm -hmm. um, so we're kind of called the Amur River peoples, um, and then that group is a much much larger group, which includes dialects of Nanai, which have their own names, um, and then other people who live closer or farther from the coast and that kind of thing. It's a huge area, and there's uh, there's quite a lot of people living there, but it's a um, it, it is Siberia. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, were you born there? Were you born in the States? How did your um, family find their way over, over here? Well, yeah, um, I was born here in the U.S. Yeah, I was born in the U.S. and I wasn't raised traditionally, really. Um, my parents actually took great pains to kind of uh, keep me on the, on the straight and narrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> but you said that I think uh, that you said your grandmother would always tell you stories to sort of keep you connected with the traditions and the history of, of the Nanai people, even though your your parents wanted you to sort of become more modernized. Um, yeah. What, what, were kind of, what were the stories that she told you when you were younger? Um, well, yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. My, my grandma it does um, used to do what, what today um, a lot of uh, Native Americans would call coyote teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and so she would basically just kind of like sort of casually talk about this story or that story or even not complete stories but drop a little bit of, um, of this or that into whatever we were doing and so um, one story she told me over and over is a story about um, the story of the fish and um, it was always how I was as a, a little girl she was paddling in her dad's canoe um, the two of them were out fishing and they caught a fish and they they brought it up alongside and she could see it in the water and it was longer than the canoe. And so, you know, in, in my head as a kid, I figured, oh, it's, that's, you know, it's, it's huge. It's like a six foot long fish or whatever, because to a kid, it, it, um, it must seem really huge. And then, at, you know, later um, in life, sort of many years later, I kind of did some research and looked into the sort of uh, the styles and sizes of the canoes. And being, uh, I'm now a traditional boat builder, so I pay a lot of attention to native watercraft and the sort of specifications of native watercraft. <laughs> Um, and in that time and era, the boats would really unlikely have been any less than nine feet, or and they were probably more likely to be around 13 feet long. So the fish that she pulled up with her dad was a, probably a Kaluga sturgeon, the biggest freshwater fish in the world. Um, and at that time, it would have been, I don't know, 13 feet long, which is um, totally possible in that era. And it was, that is an enormous fish. So yeah, obviously... Well. Yeah, as a kid, <laughs> that got my imagination going um, big time. And, you know, the stories of those kinds of fish uh, are sort of always merged together with some of the other stories about um, uh, hunters and the what we call a transformer character um, who would uh, sort of, uh, he would have like a sort of terrible stepfather or um uh, typically an evil shaman of some kind and he would show up and um, take away everything that our transformer hero had and then so um, he would often enlist the help of of his um, of his knife which was alive and his canoe which was alive and um, sometimes the fish and sometimes the orcas um, so it was pretty interesting and of course I always th th those are my favorites my my absolute favorite story is a story of of uh, our transformer hero um, making the long journey to visit uh, grandfather of the sea 
um, and along the way he has to he has kind of like an odyssey you know it's very very a lot of ways are similar to like Homer's odyssey he goes through and he has to avoid the siren calls of all the um, selkies um, they're women who are who are wearing seal skins and so they look just like seals but they kind of they kind of try to seduce him on the shore to spending his life <laughs> over there hanging out with the seals um, and he calls to the orcas and his and um, his knife um, transforms into a the fin of an orca's on an orca's back and he actually rides on top um, of the orcas and slash swims with them and so uh, it is a pretty pretty amazing story and you know, uh, I didn't hear that story till later, but um, it, that, I always found that one really fascinating. Uh, it kind of took me places. Um, so I, you know, I think as a as an indigenous person, these are the kinds of the, the kinds of stories that you hear like this. In a lot of ways, um, they connect you not just with your culture, which is of course very important, but ultimately, I think that they come from the land, um, and they come from the. They come from the sort of knowledge of the land and they connect you with the animals and plants and all the things that are useful to the people and that it's important to know about them. So the stories of orcas and stories of seals, those were, um, being coastal people, we, we um, uh, well, not super coastal. Um, we'd make like a big trip every year um, traditionally to go collect, um, to hunt seals. Um, but also um, we would have... Uh, um, there would be orca encounters and um, learning that orcas were something not to be feared, but something that would help you. Um, and then uh, learning to, uh, you know, avoid certain kinds of dangers and hazards. That's all embedded in the stories. And so there's a lot of learning to be had in those stories. But they come, the stories themselves, they come from a really deep, long knowledge of the, the land and its inhabitants. It's pretty cool. You said that of in the community that you grew up, that that you were the only Nanai people, your family, uh, here on this side of the on the side of the ocean. And I wonder, you know, during your your teen years, did you how how was it for you? Because it's like usually you have to, you can fall back on a community of people that are like you, but you know you're growing up and you're kind of it, you know, in terms of a group of your your peers. Was it? Was it difficulty for you to sort of stay connected with, you know, the heritage that you were learning from your grandmother? Or did you find yourself being averse to it because you wanted to fit into this other culture that you were constantly, constantly being surrounded and, and bombarded by? That's a that's a great question. And I think ultimately, in, in a sense, that's kind of the question that, that every minority has that grows up in a, you know, in a culture that's not predominantly them. Um yeah, uh, I moved around a lot as a kid. Um, in fact, I've lived in Seattle now for about four years, and it's the longest I've lived any place in my life. Um, so we were constantly moving, and um, as a result, um, my brother and I both learned to be really super self-sufficient and self-reliant. Um, and so we we didn't ever really like. Uh, I think we kind of got over the idea of like making friends and then having to make new friends and then having to make new friends again because we were doing it all the time. So we got really good at it. And so uh, the things that you're absolutely right, I definitely um, felt like, oh, we didn't, we didn't fit in. But more so um, not, not in the sense that we didn't fit in um, 
because we were in Anai, but um, it, even more so, I, I think our cultural identity was with being Chinese, Chinese-American, um, because um, I'm part Chinese, but more Chinese than I am Nanai, um, actually, um, like many uh, of the modern Nanai today. Um, and uh, I think because it's just so much easier for people to understand what, what it is to be um, you know, when you say you're an Asian person, <laughs> no one thinks that you're an indigenous Asian person or even knows that there are indigenous Asian people um, in the world to a large extent, um, here in America anyway. And um, so, yeah, with, I'd never really thought about it that much. Um, for the most part, we tried to fit in, you know, as kids, we, what the big difference was that my brother and I were largely self-sufficient. And as the children of immigrants, we largely were just kind of, we were running around the neighborhood all the time, collecting bugs, fishing at the local pond, uh, catching fireflies, and uh, just kind of generally making, uh, making our little suburban or city block oftentimes into our like little nature paradise. And I think... The hardest part about fitting in is we would go to school and no one under, would understand that. Um, they would understand, like, you know, I might, might come in um, with a jar of fireflies and get in trouble <laughs> <laughs> um, for that kind of thing or um, just not fit in with the kind of urban ways that everyone else had. Um, we didn't really watch television growing up or very little um, and didn't have game consoles or any of that. So it was a really different um, way to grow up. And, and also, largely, my parents weren't around a lot. They were, um, they changed their careers a bunch, um, eventually went to medical school. And so they, obviously, with young kids, most of the time, we, we just kind of got left behind. Um, and so we'd often get dumped off at the public library, or dumped off at the, at the local park. Um, and it's a different day and age. And I can hear parents already moaning, like, oh, my God, you left your kids at the public park. <laughs> <laughs> but this was a day and age when that wasn't so, it wasn't so weird to do yes, that. Yes, I remember those. <laughs> it was a good time. Um, and there was a, you know, it was a lot more, the world was a more trusting, better place. We certainly made a lot of friends of strangers. Um, and I think they enjoyed having us around as much as we enjoyed uh, learning things from them or harassing them. Well, you did a, a wonderful presentation at PIX 2015 on, on primitive, on, on work you've been doing on, on a community that practices uh, primitive skills. Um, but before we get into the photo project, I, I know that in college, one of your professors sort of introduced you to that world with a book called Ishmael. And I was yes, wondering, that's right. Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what that book is about and why it made such an impression on you. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I haven't thought about Ishmael in a while, but it's sort of the beginning of, uh, uh, the beginning of a really big change for me. Um, that's great, too. I wonder how you dug that information up, because I haven't thought about it for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, Ishmael, I think, really helped... I think it really helped me realize that um, the land... Um, and the way that indigenous people interact with the land, um, especially as hunter-gatherers, was, a, was something really admirable, and not just admirable from the sake of the kind of um, romantic look at the world, but admirable from the point of view of like, oh, the world would benefit a lot from learning about how hunter-gatherers lived and how indigenous peoples see the world. Um, 
Uh, you know, Ishmael talks a lot about um, the by sort of categorizing um, human beings into either people who are hunter gatherers or people who are non hunter gatherers and kind of looking at the differences in the way that um, we interact with the rest of the natural world. Um, so human beings being just another animal, you know, in a sense, and um, and seeing that hunter gatherers to a large extent don't really um, don't really ruin it for everybody else. <laughs> um, whereas we, as a modern, um, highly um, sophisticated, you know, uh, agriculturalists, really, um, we we have found a really good thing for ourselves. But um, we're kind of we've definitely been ruining it for for everybody else, for all the other species on the planet, and um, um, and also, you know, we're kind of ultimately we're going to ruin it for ourselves. Um, and so I think it definitely fascinated me um, to think, oh wow, there is a way forward by looking back. And it's not just a it's not just looking back um, at this ancient thing that's gone. Because for me, it wasn't gone; it was real. You know, it's like part of my family and the stories. And so um, it was like, oh, okay, we have a way forward by looking by talking to the people who have come before, and not not that long ago. Um, so that was pretty pretty fascinating to me. Is this what led to uh, your relationship with uh, Lynx Vilden? Um, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, um, yeah. Why don't you tell us, uh, tell our listeners who don't know who she is and what she does, uh, a little bit about her and and how you guys have collaborated? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lynx is a pretty well. Uh, Lynx is a really unique person. Um, she's what we call uh, an expert in the field of primitive skills. Um, and primitive skills, there's lots of different words for it, ancestral skills, uh, a hunter-gatherer um, living. But essentially, she, she um, spends a lot of time working and thinking about um, Stone Age living, and that's uh, ways to live um, close to the land using Paleolithic methods, um, using just stone tools. And that means, like, nothing at all from the modern world. Um, you can pretty much discount um, even like the ability to use a knife. Um, like a lot of survival teaching is about, you know, how do I get by with the clothes on my back and a knife in my hand? Well, I mean, even none of that. Just going out into the wilderness with uh, just what you make from the wilderness itself with your hands. But it's different than looking at it from a survival point of view. Because what Lynx has been doing um, in the last, well, pretty much her, the majority of her life is looking at how to, exactly what Ishmael was talking about, which is how to, how to live um, close to the land using Stone Age skills, but to thrive over a long period of time. Um, and that means not survival, but what we call thrival, like thriving in that new landscape. Um, so I, I met Lynx at... Um, after sort of a long series of kind of soul-searching things, um, uh, I was a graphic designer at the time, and I was already um, sort of deeply involved with the primitive skills movement. I had, um, I had, at that time, I had been thinking that I was going to be a, a, <laughs> a bow maker. <laughs> I was going to make primitive bows and arrows and um, sell them. Because, you know, as a teenager, you're not really thinking, thinking too, uh, <laughs> too pragmatically in that way. Um, and uh, I was involved with primitive skills, and one day at one of the, um, there are, 
we're lucky here in the United States. We're kind of at the forefront of um, the primitive skills movement, largely because we're so we still have so many rural people. We have so much um, relatively wild land, and so all the the big primitive skills things that happen um, they happen here in the United States, um, and they draw people from all around the world. Um, and so at one of these big rendezvous or um, gatherings, um, I met Lynx, and one of the first things, she, she kind of looked at the, she kind of took a look at um, my energy, I guess, and she said, hey, do you want to come and live paleolithically um, and learn how to hunt and gather for real um, in the forest for months? You know, and at that time, I was really, um, I, um, hunting was a really big part of my life, um, and especially using primitive bow and arrow, and um, I was spending so much time in the woods and trying to learn all of the things that we've kind of forgotten. Um, and she came to me at the right time, and I was like, "Yes, I absolutely do." <laughs> and Lynx is an amazing woman. Like when you meet her from the, just from the sort of energy and visual perspective, you can't help but be completely struck by her. Um, the uh, writer I've been working with on the story, um, Jason. Mark, um, he kind of describes Lynx as a wildling from uh, Game of Thrones. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, when you meet her, she's covered in furs and buckskins and she, she's barefoot and tromping around, but it, none of it looks foreign to her. This isn't a costume that you wear, you know, it's just, it's not like, uh, she lives this way, more or less full time. Um, and she, you know, there are some concessions to it. She can't be a nomad and, and isn't wandering around all the time. Um, but, you know, when you meet her, you're like, well, this is the real deal. This is a person who looks like they've stepped out. Of, you know, it could be 10,000 years ago um, or uh, 100,000 years ago, and she stepped out of the past and is standing right in front of you. You know, so that just kind of immediately seized me, and I said, yes. Um, and I, at that time, I didn't realize that it would be kind of a lifelong relationship and that she would sort of change my world <laughs> um, to a large degree. And she has. Um, We've been, um, I've known her for uh, what, almost, I guess, 15 years now. And, and um, the things that, we've done a lot of stuff together. We've done a lot of projects together. We've spent a lot of time um, in very long, slow moments just spending time with each other, maybe not even speaking to each other and just kind of getting to know each other in, slow, in the slow way um, of things when people are just out when you just have two hunters out roaming a landscape, you know, um, she's, in some ways I know her deeper than I know many, most other people. So how did photography make its way into all these varied interests? Well, um, I became a photographer uh, much later than I was a um, primitive skills person. <laughs> I think um, initially, it is kind of funny, you know, I think when you get involved in photography, uh, it was a natural step for me as a graphic designer to move into photography. Um, and when I moved into photography, like I sort of did a lot the same thing a lot of young photographers do, which is, oh, look, let's 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 shoot some fashion. Let's shoot some music, you know, and I got involved in all that stuff. And um, it didn't take that long. It was good for me because it honed my technical skills, the skills of using strobes and uh, all the kind of um, the technique um, and technology bit of it. But um, it wasn't long before I kind of figured out, well, wow, this is this stuff that's, for me, um, fashion and music is really empty. It just doesn't have the same, it just, you know, it's just kind of not my world. And um, 
then I started working um, for REI as, a, as an assistant. Um, and I started doing, you know, I started shooting for REI. And then somewhere along those lines, as I started to do more and more uh, of my own personal work, I, I could have made the connection, oh, okay. Well, the thing that's really near and dear to me that um, no one else even knows about, this world that people don't even um, know exists to a large extent, is the primitive skills world. I need to find a way to combine these two, two things. And um, so when it came to choosing personal projects, this was um, high on the list, but I didn't do it for a long time just because of the sheer difficulty of logistics involved. I, you know, I kind of knew when I, the one day when I went into the, you know, deep into the mountains or deep into the forest to go out with Lynx on a primitive trip that there would be no, <laughs> she wouldn't, she's a, she could be a very stubborn woman and there was no way that she was going to let me get away with any kind of concessions. Um, so if I was out there and I didn't have, you know, I was going to be cold or my cameras are going to have problems because of being out in the wet and the cold and um, being exposed to the elements all the time where I couldn't make something work, there was not going to be any way out. I would have to figure it out. So I needed to learn um, how to deal with all the things about taking care of myself completely and fully and have all the camera stuff dialed to the point where I wouldn't have to think about it. Because when you're out living um, in a hunter-gatherer fashion, um, you have to be. You really have to be completely on top of it, and even then, um, the will nature doesn't really care for you either way. It's um, it's pretty neutral about your existence, and um, if you're not paying attention, it, it will definitely try to kill you. <laughs> and now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor. One of the nice things about a Squarespace website is its ability to create a cover page or landing page for your website. It's the first thing people see when they land on your website, and it's a great way to set the tone and expectation for what people are going to see. Using a full bleed image that displays beautifully across the entire screen with awesome typography can really make an impression. And to make this even better, Squarespace has recently released 14 new layouts that provide a wide range of looks and experiences. Card, Flash, Gazette, and Mission can be bold landing pages or a single showcase for your business or passion. Layouts like Monocle, Silhouette, Snapshot, Vanguard, and Vignette put your personality and social media accounts front and center. Find out today how easy and exciting having your own website can be. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And, and to make it clear for, for people who are listening, this is not a weekend excursion. You're talking about months out there with, you know, like you said, no knife, no lighters, no modern conveniences you're going out there and you're having to procure water shelter food on a on a daily basis and uh that you're also trying to be a photographer in the midst of that so uh tell me about some of the considerations photographically that you had to make to make sure that you were 
you know, holding your own because you could not be a weak link in this. You couldn't just fall back and just say, I'm the photographer. You were as much a participant as everyone else. And you were, or they were as dependent on you as you were on them in terms of being able to, you know, maintain all those essentials in order to survive. Yes, that's, wow, that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I felt uh, lucky um, in a lot of senses that it, despite the fact that I was carrying my camera out there, um, I've been doing this for a long time and very seriously. Um, so I didn't feel like it was going to be a liability and I had a lot more experience than a lot of the new project participants. Um, so I felt like I could definitely hold my own weight and still be able to help care for um, other people in the events. Um, you can be, we're always thinking about food out there. There's, there's never enough food. <laughs> or I, I, I take that back. Every once in a while there's enough food, but it's a rarity. Um, but I, you know, there, there are some choices that you had to make. Um, and one of the choices was, um, do I bring my camera and I, do I bring my bow? Um, I knew that if I was uh, brought my bow, that we would have a uh, that I was probably going to be able to feed people, including myself. But I knew that if I brought my bow, there would be no photographs of hunting, um, which is a really big part of what we do out there. Um, so I sort of kind of gritted my teeth and said, "All right, bow and arrows, you got to stay home because my, I'm not hunting with you. I'm hunting with my camera." Um, and it was uh, definitely a new set of challenges out there. Um, I had to think a little bit less about the group dynamic and how to, how to kind of keep everyone um, alive and well-fed and um, in good spirits and, and sort of float around a little bit more as an observer. Um, fortunately, because I knew people um, pretty well already and um, felt very comfortable in that environment, you know, I wasn't... Uh, if I had been uncomfortable, I think it would have been a lot harder to, to kind of keep tabs on what was happening and be an observer at the same time. You know, sometimes you're so, when you're in an experience, you're so deeply inside the experience um, that you can't observe it. You can't really see what it looks like to an outsider. But that's, I think, pretty vital um, as a journalist, um, especially, you know, as a journalist and especially as a photojournalist. Um, but yeah, there, there are some pretty significant challenges. Um, Number one is keeping all of your gear clean, um, keeping your gear clean and wet and, or sorry, uh, and dry. Um, it's sort of, there's, the conditions are changing all the time out there, but very often you, there is no chance in hell you're going to keep yourself dry. <laughs> the shelters are not really rainproof. They are, they do a pretty good job, but um, on the, on the average, you're going to get wet someplace. Some of your gear is going to get wet. And so it's a continual process of keeping everything dry, um, keeping uh, critters from getting into it, mice and um, other things from getting into it, and then just um, dealing with all those things. But as human beings, we're very good at dealing with just, you know, we're just good at gritting our teeth and tolerating it. But your cameras can't really get wet and dried and wet and dried with dirt around them all the time or else slowly the images degrade and eventually your, your stuff dies. And you didn't have the benefit of having this waterproof bag, modern, modern waterproof right. bag. You had to That's make right. that bag. That's right. And so my stuff was buckskin. Um, I was using a lot of the um, stuff that I already had made and that I made special, some special pouches, etc. cetera, uh, using uh, a, a type of um, tanning method that is more waterproof. 
but nevertheless, it's not it's still not as good as um, you know modern materials in terms of waterproofness. I think waterproofness is the the one I keep talking about because in the um, primitive world, in the Paleolithic world, there is almost no such thing as waterproof. Um, it takes very specialized um, knowledge and very specialized materials that come mostly from the far north or from marine mammals in order to make your things truly waterproof. Um, and so um, keeping all of that clean was, uh, you know, is, is difficult. Um, and then the bigger part of it, though, um, is um, sort of managing being around and following what everyone's up to, but not disturbing what's actually happening. And I think that the toughest part is during, um, is during hunting and fishing, when you absolutely have to be quiet and out of the way. And, um, you know, if, uh, if and anyone out there listening has ever hunted before, I think you know that um, you can often be busted by things, uh, by animals in the trees or something else, by a squirrel or a blue jay that's around that you're not paying attention to, which alerts the deer or which alerts the um, turkey, um, whatever it is. And because those animals are not just paying attention to you. They're much, much more deeply involved in that ecosystem. So they, they pay attention to their, their alarm signals. And so they pay attention to the other things that are paying attention to predators. That's so all one big network out there. And so um, when I'm out there following a hunter, I have to be aware of not just what the hunter is doing and what's going on through my lens, but I have to be careful of what I'm stepping on, um, what my colors are showing and how my movement is flagging things. And also who's around me? You know, is there a blue jay in the tree near me? Is there a squirrel off in the distance? Um, is he chattering? I mean, you know, generally there's already a squirrel chattering. Is he chattering at me? Or is he chattering at one of my hunting buddies? Or is he chattering um, just because sometimes they just like to do that? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so it's one thing to just sort of sit on a hill with the telephoto lens and try to shoot the hunters from far away. But I think um, it's not my style. I, I prefer to be intimate and get in there closely um, and to really get pe give people a sense for um, what it's really like to be up there, to be sort of cold and grungy um, and to have that need expressed in the eyes. I think... Yeah, that it's a different thing when you're sort of fat and happy and had your morning sausages and you're out there just fresh out of the car um, or even fresh out of your tent and hunting um, when you know that there's food at the other end. But for these hunters, generally speaking, um, a good hunting foray might mean that, uh, I think I said this before, but um, you know, 10 people will eat for a week or no one will eat at all for the rest of the trip. You know, we're, we'll eat any high-protein, high-calorie things for the rest of the trip, which could mean a lot of suffering and a lot of, a lot of tempers, you know, a lot of mm. uh, difficulty in the group. Well, weight must, uh, must have been another consideration. So how did that factor in into what you took and what exactly did you choose to take with you in terms of equipment, photographic equipment? Um, yeah, I, I uh, did um, some photographs at sort of what the our base camp was, um, where people prepare before they go out on the big on the big trip. So they the Lynx's projects consist of a, a long preparatory period, um, about as long as a year, and people come in fl flying from all over the place, and they generally already have some experience. They already know how to tan um, hides and know fire starting and sort of the basics. But even still, there's a year. It takes a year to get all your clothing ready and all of to dry enough food for that initial week when you need to get used to um, when you're traveling 
and you're burning lots of calories and you know all those things it takes a tremendous amount of time to make and deal with um, I, I, to give you a, an example of that even uh, just tanning a single hide takes ten, about 10 hours and it's not just 10 hours but it's 10 hour difficult hours um, blood sweat and tears and like you know puffy puffy fingers um, and then um, a single top might take five hides. So you're talking 50 hours just for tanning that and then another 20 hours to sew the thing together. Um, it's a lot of work. Um, so it takes about a year to prep that. And so when I was out there photographing, I did um, a number of photographs during the prep stage um, where I brought a black backdrop and some strobes and I shot portraits of the people, um, of the group participants. Um, and it's really interesting to see them because you have a pretty good broad swath of people. You would kind of expect that everyone would be um, white and American and in their 20s. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not the case. It's, there's definitely a tendency for people to be younger because it's just so harsh out there. You know, It's very difficult to get into this kind of stuff and go full hog if you're in your 60s. Um, but we have a lot of ethnicities um, and uh, you have a lot of uh, age range as well. And so I wanted to be able to capture some of that diversity and also just just looking at people, what they've done just in the preparatory stage is pretty amazing. And when they put on all their, their, their primitive gear, it is a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like their regalia. You know, you put it on and you, you really do become someone else. Um, and that's, there's with a lot of pride that they wear their stuff. So when you look at a lot of the old uh, portraits of, Native peoples, um, especially shot by Edward Curtis around the turn of the 20th century, um, you see people that are proud of all the the clothing that they're wearing, who have a bearing that's that's you know that sort of noble savage thing. Well, that's part of it is because they've been sitting there in front of the camera for three minutes <laughs> because of the long exposure, but part of it is also because they do. There is a certain sense of pride. You're posing for the camera. And you want people to see the very best of what you've done. And, the, and that pride comes from, with the, with the old native stuff, it was not just a pride of, you know, generally if it was a, a chief or um, anyway, a man, most of the time their clothing wasn't made by them. It was made by people who supported them. And so when you, but their bows and their arrows and um, all the other things that are in that photograph, um, that for them speaks about their entire family and their entire culture. So they're representing all those things and that's how indigenous people think. They're thinking of their families, they're thinking of the rest of the culture. And so when they put those clothes on, that's how they're presenting themselves. And there's a bit of that, the same kinds of things. Um, when we're photograph when I'm photographing uh, the people from Lynx's group, um, it's not the same um, because we don't have the cultural connection. People are sort of discarding their culture to look for a new one when they're looking for, when they're doing this. Um, but some of that sense of pride and that belonging to a, a culture that's really different, that comes out. And so I wanted to shoot those um, portraits uh, while we were close to a base camp where I could haul that gear. Um, ultimately though, when I went out on the, the long trip, um, when we were really, you know, the, the actual Paleolithic trip, um, I took two camera bodies and four lenses, and that combo was probably about 20 <laughs> pounds, um, yeah, about 20 pounds or so. Actually, I took three camera bodies. I took a tiny little um, compact, an advanced compact, and a Sony RX, 
100. Um, and so with that setup, it was it added a lot of weight, um, which isn't such a big deal when you're hiking with modern gear. But if you're walking around barefoot up these steep mountain trails, uh, 25 pounds is a lot you'd like to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> this has turned into a, a much more than a personal project. You've, you've, you're working with National Geographic now. On a, mm-hmm. on a two-year project, tell us about how that how that came about and what what it's taken shape into. Yeah, that's right. Um, th- this was a the project itself is a pretty controversial and continues to be <laughs> with Geographic. I think um, in some ways, um, uh, when this landed before um, Sarah Lee, who's the director of photography at Geographic, it, when it landed in front of her, the thing she liked the most was the portraiture. And I think the portraiture is a little bit um, more, uh, less controversial. Um, but there's always the, you know, I heard from some of the other, the some of the editors, not the photo editors, but the um, the editors of the magazine, that there's a bit of controversy over the idea of this because people are doing this, and to them it feels a bit like, oh, if you if you have the money and the or the privilege in a sense, you know, to be able to just pick up and leave everything behind, um, then you're just looking at a group of people that are that are, have the privilege to go and do something fancy. You know, it's sort of like, uh, oh, the king is going hunting, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely a sense of that. I mean, you, you know, like um, so a refugee in Syria is not going to be walking back and, you know, trying to move sort of uh, you know, what the modern world would call moving backwards. Um that's sort of the last thing on their on their minds, but what's there's a lot of interesting things that happens from this controversy, um, and there's a lot of I think the people that are attracted to it to a large degree are interested because of the um, sort of environmental impact um, because of the I mean there's actually a lot of reasons why people get involved, but but I think that um, with geographic the thing that we're talking about um, to a large extent is the experimental archaeology side of primitive skills. Um, which is that when we go out, it's not just a bunch of people um, out there sort of on a glorified camping trip. It is actually people that are taking traditional skills. Because the skills don't come out of nowhere. They're not invented. They've all been done before. Um, it's, a, it's a question of uh, sort of learning how to take back what was already, to a large extent, a lot of this information is slowly being lost. Um, and it's being reinvented, relearned, and validated um, by experimental archaeologists um, and by people who are doing this kind of stuff that are keeping it alive. Um, there is a, a bit of lack of scientific rigor in a project like this where it's not like, you know, you're not like sitting there with a notebook or um, a camera taking pictures of and documenting every step of the process. Um, uh, but it's, a, it's different because science always looks at the sort of it's always trying to break things down into smaller and smaller pieces, and it's documenting very itty-bitty little things, like looking at the wear patterns on stone flake tools uh, and uh, so that you can tell whether they were used for cutting meat or cutting, um, cutting vegetables when you look in an archaeological site, which tells us something about ancient humans. But what I think that's the valuable thing about looking at what primitive skills people are doing is that you're looking at much more holistically. How did people... Um, survive in environments like this? How do they solve problems and deal with group dynamics and deal with all of the sort of varied things that um, come with having to live close to the land and 
and having a limited amount of knowledge that you can only keep in, within your head um, without the benefit of modern tools. And it's interesting because in some places, in quite a lot of places actually, um, we've actually seen um, people who are primitive skills practitioners who originally learned um, from anthrop from writings in, uh, that anthropologists did from elders um, that have since passed away and then gone back to a culture and been asked by that by that indigenous culture to teach it back to the youth, um, especially once that skill is gone. Um, as, a, as a native kayak builder, um, I've been, you know, as a traditional kayak builder, I've been asked to teach uh, kayak building to cultures um, of who are actually have more of a uh, direct connection with the kayaks than I do. You know, like when I, even though I build traditional kayaks, they're not Nanai kayaks. Uh, Skin-on-frame kayaks are from further north in the Pacific Rim. They come from where above the tree line. And so um, I was asked by um, uh, programs that are related to the tribes up north um, that include Yupik and Inupiat peoples and uh, teaching their youth how to build their kayaks because to a large extent that knowledge is gone. One of the most significant um, Elders in the skin, you know, in the ancient uh, traditional kayak building world, uh, passed away uh, about five years ago. Um, Frank Andrews, and with him went just a ton of knowledge, and the skin sewing and all of that knowledge is just long since been gone. And so when we teach it back to people, it's a little bit different. You know, it's not the same as it was, and it lacks some of the cultural context. But within, but if we don't do it at all, we risk losing all of it. And that's the thing that I think we, it's important to, to understand about it is, you know, all of this stuff, it's basically very difficult problems solved with very minimal resources. And one day, that knowledge may be useful again. Um, even if it's not useful in terms of, um, uh, you know, we're not going to need to be able to hunt seals with <laughs> just stone tools anymore. Um, it is useful for us to understand old uh, ancient cultures, um, and it is useful for us to understand um, how people were able to live in a way that sort of took advantage of the cycles of the land and what nature had to give us in a sustainable way. So those are pretty interesting things to think about. How how is you know, this and the related experiences um, impacted you as as a photographer, not only in terms of maybe how you um, think of the role of the camera in your life, but in terms of the kind of assignments that you have pursued or been approached by, because I know you do a lot of work in adventure fitness and, and, and other work in terms of conservation, but how, how has all this sort of colored your, your career as a photographer? Um, I think very much when I started to do this kind of work, um, I was a, uh, a bit at a crossroads, you know, um, my adventure career um, was taking off. I'm still a, a very, uh, I'm still a young photographer. <laughs> um, I haven't been shooting for uh, professionally for really all that long. And um, I was kind of at this crossroads. Well, I want to keep doing, uh, adventure photography is really great. Um, but I have, you know, I, I sort of uh, ultimately kind of felt like I was betraying this unique role that I have, which is a bit of being an ambassador between worlds. Um, I think it's important for me as an indigenous person 
um, who lives in the modern world and uh, understands how the modern world works uh, and how the, the wider world works and also as a media person, as a journalist, to be able to tell the rest of the world and connect the rest of the world with what indigenous issues um, and also issues of, of those who are living close to the land. They, they largely don't have a voice. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think it would slowly, as I sort of got involved with more things that were related to my history in uh, primitive skills, especially of this project, it really made me realize that there was an authenticity to what I was doing and a deep knowledge that helped my photography um, a lot. And it moved me into the realm, it firmly planted me in the realm of documentary um, and photojournalism, much more so um, than I had been doing previously. Um, it, it, it helps when um, somebody like National Geographic expresses an interest and sort of validates what you're doing. But at the same time, I knew just shooting it, um, even out there, that this was something that is uniquely, um, if I don't do it, there's really no one else out there that will. Um, and uh, looking at the sort of photographs out there of indigenous peoples too, um, I sort of have over time kind of recognized that there's a lot of the story that isn't being told and no one will tell it um, for these people without a voice. Yeah, and that's one thing I wanted to talk to, uh, talk to you about before we, before we end was this project that you, that you were doing on native portraits and cultural traditions. Uh, those are this amazing body of work. But I thought it was really interesting uh, perspective that someone who comes from that tradition is the photographer because there's a long history of, you know, the outsider uh, coming in to photograph and document um, indigenous people. And I thought that it must have been uh, a, a unique privilege and a fascinating experience both for you and your subjects to have you behind the camera. Yeah, I think so. Um, it, it's a kind of interesting because I, I end up uh, occupying this unique niche because I, because I wasn't raised, um, say in America, like I wasn't raised um, on a res, on a reservation. Um, and uh, but at the same time, um, because I've spent so much time around other indigenous people, um, especially in my adult life, they, you know, I can walk up and people know and trust me. They kind of understand where, where I'm at. Um, but um, when you, I think if you, when you come off of the reservation, that to a certain extent, it, it, uh, it really influences who you are. And it's difficult to understand how the outside world sees things. And so I'm kind of this weird hybrid because I've been chasing, um, I've been chasing my ancestry and chasing um, kind of the, the of what it means to be um, an indigenous person and uh, that sort of space in between where um, I'm part of the outside world but also part of the indigenous world. That's a unique space to occupy, and I think every I think that's what. Mm, we were talking about the idea of being an ambassador. I think that's where that comes into play, and and it, people appreciate it. Um, I know that uh, when I'm working with uh, different tribes or different groups of people, individuals appreciate it. Um, and I, I always take the opportunity. This is a funny thing that don't, we don't see very often, but um, when I'm doing these uh, photographs for my body of work on uh, Native peoples and sort of traditional practices, at the same time, too, um, I might be shooting photographs for, the, for their family of their new baby. Um, and I might be shooting f uh, photographs of them 
uh, not in their regalia, but just like a headshot for um, whatever it is that they need to do, because that's that work is uh, pretty much just as important. <laughs> and um, uh, a lot of people, especially say up in Alaska and more remote areas, they just don't have access to that. They don't have the ability to do it or to get photographs for that kind of thing. And that feels just as important to me um, because it works for them on an individual level um, and, uh, you know, is important to their families. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. I, of course, have many. <laughs> Um, I am going to give you um, a photographer whose work I really uh, have absolutely loved. She's a geographic photographer. Um, her name is Erica Larson. Um, she is, uh, I believe she's Scandinavian um, originally, but she did um, her first story for National Geographic um, was, a, was a photo essay of some of the Sami mm -hmm. up in um, uh, the Norwegian area of Samiland. Um, and especially, I've just recently um, spent a bunch of time in Lapland, um, just got back from there, and uh, time with the Sami, and it just, her photographs really, and her process are amazing, in the sense that, like, um, they, she spent, I think, three and a half years up there living as a, as a reindeer herder's um, uh, assistant and so she really understands and has kind of an empathy for the people and the family and all the relationships so when you look at her photographs they're kind of quiet they're quiet and beautiful there's portraits um, on the snow and the light is um, soft and quiet and there's all the you know light from the tundra etc but I think the quiet part of it really captures her work because the understatement is something that we just don't see very often, but there's so much that's said there. And I think that's particularly important too because she's done a, um, a fair number, uh, she's done stories, several stories now of indigenous peoples. And um, her work is beautifully uh, understated and quiet. And that's how a lot of the people are, the ones that are living not in you know, the non-urban um, indigenous folks are to a large extent, they're very quiet, but they have a, it's getting, letting that quietness show through that you start to see who people really are. And um, it's pretty incredible. It takes a lot of patience, I think, and a lot of, um, a lot of time, not with the camera, getting people's trust and learning to understand and empathize with them. And her work um, brilliantly shows that. So she's, yeah, she's definitely one of my heroes. And where can people go to find out more about you and, and your work? Um, easiest place is my website, which is uh, keely.com. Um, my name is pretty difficult to spell. <laughs> um, it's uh, K-I-L-I-I-I. -I -I. There's three I's at the end. Dot com. K-I-L-I-I-I dot com. Well, Keely, it was a wonderful opportunity to, to talk to you. I'm glad that we, uh, that we connected. Thank you so much for making time for me this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Avarian X. Cheers. Thanks again for joining me. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor. 
you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. The Candid Frame is a member of TWIP, a network of photo-related podcasts. You can find more great shows on your favorite topic by visiting thisweekinphoto.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.